are listening to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. We're coming up on the end of the year. This is our last show of 2021. Special welcome to anyone listening to this while relaxing on their winter break. Uh, I was just telling our guest I have my ugly holiday sweater on. The letters FTC are on a lot of lips these days. That's thanks mainly to the work of an energetic new chair, Lena Kahn. Since Kahn took her seat in June, the FTC, or Federal Trade Commission, has revoked earlier commission policy statements and guidelines, discarded procedural protections for regulated parties, taken measures against mergers and acquisitions, and consolidated authority in the chair's office. Here to discuss all things FTC with me is Adam Sella, an attorney advisor to FTC Commissioner Christine Wilson. I saw Adam speak at a FedSoc event called the FTC in the Current Administration, Buckle Your Seatbelts. The title of that event gives a pretty good flavor of how some people, and certainly many in the business community, think of the FTC these days. One thing I learned from watching that event is that Adam is wicked smart. So I'm very glad to have him on the show today. Uh, I will also try to make him blush by noting that he's only like five years out of law school. So he's a rising star and a name worth remembering. Adam, welcome. Um, Thanks for having me. (laughs) So the overall theme for today is what's going on at the FTC. Uh, we'll be talking about changes in the substantive policies that are going to be pursued, and we're going to be talking about changes in the procedures that the agency will apply. But I'd like to start with changes in how the commission operates behind the scenes. I think you, being an FTC insider, can probably offer us some rare insight into that. Uh, Could you talk about what has changed in terms of the commission's nuts and bolts operations And in particular, Commissioner Wilson has raised issues about transparency. And if you could speak to that, that'd be great. Certainly. Uh, Thanks again for having me on in that very, very generous introduction. Um, I also should note, need to note uh, before I start that the views I express are my own and not necessarily the views of the commission or any individual commissioner. And with that out of the way, get to your question, what is going on at the FTC right now? Uh, It depends on the person that you ask. And it's important to understand the context or the message around what is going on right now and what is being proposed. Current leadership, the neo-Brandesians, whatever you want to call them or name they want to go by, they claim we are undergoing a bipartisan antitrust revolution. FTC leadership characterizes their actions as employing all the tools available to the FTC. And FTC leadership claims that there has been a missed opportunity over the last few decades to take full advantage of the tools that Congress granted the agency. There's been quite a bit of pushback on that view, but don't get me wrong, there is broad bipartisan support that a minimum antitrust enforcement has been underfunded. And more funding will lead to more agency work, whether that's more investigations, just more staffing on investigations, or expansion in other areas. And there's also been calls for more transparency regarding closed investigations and more work on merger retrospectives. These ideas are worth pursuing and they'll they'll all of course take additional resources. But increasing enforcement is different than some of the nuts and bolts changes that are being implemented now. So 
I view the big changes in, in three buckets to answer your question. First, we have seen attempts to withhold information from minority commissioners, most notably the second request concerns raised by Commissioner Wilson, and to keep minority commissioners out of the process more generally, for example, by publishing the prior approval policy without the corresponding dissent, and general concerns that have been voiced repeatedly about including debate and discussion when decisions are being made instead of rushing through votes. It's hard for me to understand how these changes, if intentional, help the FTC's agenda. We've also seen changes regarding the focus of investigations. Uh, words and actions coming from the commission leadership have made it clear that there's a shift in focus from harm to consumers. And there have been public reports about the questions staff are asking or being directed to ask that do not appear to be connected to any antitrust theory of harm. And finally, the third bucket, there has been considerable process changes or nuts and bolts changes regarding merger review, which I'm happy to talk about in more detail. Um, that is a, a long conversation in and of itself. But I think it's important to answer why any of these nuts and bolts or process changes matter. It's easy to view process concerns as pretextual complaining. These changes matter because at its best, the FTC consists of five commissioners, or currently four, uh, each chosen by the president and confirmed by the Senate for their expertise and their beliefs. Uh, they all bring varied perspectives and policy preferences to the job, and having five experts in prominent positions allows the FTC to reach decisions and craft policy in a far more comprehensive way than any one person could uh, on their own. The point is not about agree. The point is that a decision that has benefited from being analyzed and critiqued by five commissioners or four commissioners is going to be a more rigorous decision than one pushed through in a manner uh, meant to minimize discussion or debate. The FTC is better when all the commissioners can weigh in on and help improve policy decisions. So you've talked just now about the importance of the uh, commissioner's expertise. And then there's also the fact that they're, you know, the FTC has an expert career staff. Um, commissioner Wilson spoke recently at the American Bar Association's Fall Forum. The title of the speech is The Neo-Brandeisian Revolution, Unforced Heirs and the Diminution of the FTC. Uh, and in that speech, I think it's Fair to say the commissioner you know did not mince words in in her thoughts about uh the approach going on these days uh quote revolution revolutionaries do not make good bureaucrats that's one line in there that uh maybe turned a few heads but to, to circle back you know one of the unforced errors that commissioner wilson mentioned was treatment of the staff um she said current leadership quote has sidelined and disdained our staff so what are the specific problems that the, that the staff are facing and, and what have been the consequences of that? Sure. Commissioner Wilson early on publicly raised concerns that big policy changes were being made without including the input from the FTC's expert staff. And commissioners are not always going to agree with staff, just like how they will not always agree with each other, but they will benefit from staff's perspective, just like they'll benefit from each other's perspective. It, and just to visit staff for a second, the FTC has antitrust lawyers with a wealth of experience. Some have literally been enforcing antitrust laws for decades. 
And the FTC has enforcement-minded economists that are vital to our mission. And all of these people are choosing to work for the government to enforce the antitrust laws instead of working at private law firms or economic consulting firms or other businesses. And the biggest misconception is that these career staff members somehow choose these jobs because they're easier in some way. The career staff that build enforcement actions, they work late nights, long weekends, and their work is impeccable. I regularly see it firsthand. So anyone who claims that this is a government job or a nine to five is, has never worked with or at uh, the FTC and seen this staff in action. Um, you know, everyone likes to publicly praise staff, but to answer your question about pivoting away from experts internally, you need to examine how staff's work is being used and considered inside of the commission. So for example, we all know HSR filings have increased, but DOJ is not facing the difficulties that FTC is seemingly facing just because, to pause, to pause sure. the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act, for those of us, who, uh, anyone who's, who's wondering, which is um, basically the FTC's way, correct me if I'm wrong, of streamlining sort of pre-merger review. Sure. Mergers over a certain size and uh, don't fall into certain exemptions need to be filed with the government. Then they are sent to either the FTC or the DOJ, depending on uh, expertise through the clearance process. So... FTC and DOJ both review mergers after they are filed. Um, yeah. At the FTC, we have leadership talking about this merger wave uh, a lot, and they have publicly stated that staff in um, OIA, the Office of International Affairs, who do very important work about uh, with the international enforcement community and our uh, OPP, our public policy group, uh, they were all, instead of focusing on their important jobs, uh, reviewing HSR filings, not every member of staff in those groups, but a, a large amount of them. Uh, now, this approach would make sense if there was a boom in anti-competitive mergers, not just HSR filings. Commission leadership keep calling this increase a merger wave. And Commissioner Phillips has made the point that many HSR filings are not what we would colloquially call mergers. Uh, there are many reasons you have to file uh, HSR, as we just noted, it's basically acquisitions over a certain size that don't fall into some exemption. Um, so some of the, just for, for example, the HSR filings that come in will be a CEO exercising stock options uh, that they have a right to receive. Uh, so the question here is, has the increase in HSR filings required more substantive review of potentially anti-competitive mergers? largely mergers that raise traditional horizontal or vertical theories of harm. Now, I don't know the answer to that question. There are many theories as to why HSR filings are up. For example, there's low interest rates or a well-performing stock market. But the point is this wave may or may not be leading to an increase in anti-competitive deals. We do not know. So the interesting and concerning point is that commission leadership keeps saying we are seeing a merger wave. Yet we have not seen a large amount of abandoned transactions, consents, or complaints filed against mergers and acquisitions coming out of the FTC this year. In fact, we have seen a decrease from the FTC under Chair, Chair Simons. This raises the question of what commission leadership is actually doing with the commission's resources and whether commission leadership's reaction to the merger wave has other motives. Yeah, I mentioned 
that report suggests that staff are asking questions about transactions that have no basis in current antitrust theories of harm. And uh, Commissioner Wilson has suggested that these changes from commission leadership are leading the FTC to be unable to handle the increase in merger filings, where the DOJ does not seem to be having this problem. In other words, this top-down policy is making a mess of our experts, our expert staff's work. They're jamming up resources or some other explanation. Whatever the explanation, it appears either our expert staff is being held up from actually bringing antitrust enforcement actions, or this merger wave is actually resulting in less anti-competitive mergers, which would surprise a lot of people. It's just that the lack of actual antitrust enforcement over the last few months raises many concerns about how leadership is using FTC's expert staff and also other decisions that they have made uh, about what staff can and cannot do. For example, they force staff to cancel public appearances. Now, staff is working incredibly hard. We all know that. But they are experts in the areas where they focus. Allowing staff to go out in the public and spread the FTC's voice is a good thing. Not to mention that participation is a rewarding experience and staff should be allowed to participate, especially if a goal is to retain your workforce. So this is all to say that this sidelining of expert staff needs to stop because it's making the FTC less effective. Staff will carry out the mission of the FTC as directed by its leaders who are appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, but staff needs to be allowed to do its job. Some neo-Brandesians have an unfortunate history of publicly accusing staff of superficial analysis and investigation, labeling investigations as flawed and ineffective, and most recently using staff as a convenient scapegoat. We saw this when politicians shifted blame for gas prices increases to the FTC and commission leadership uh, embraced that message, whereas many factors are actually contributing to rising gas prices. But Commission leadership embraced the political message without evidence that flawed merger review has facilitated collusive practices among gas stations. Now, every president does something like this when gas prices go up, but what is new is FT leadership publicly taking the side of the politicians, not the staff at the FTC, that continue to do great work in this area. And I'm sympathetic to the pressure antitrust enforcement is under, especially the leaders of the agencies. Politicians are going to be unhappy if leadership does not act, if leadership is not divisive, leadership is not quick. You know, I've never testified in front of Congress, but I can say it does not look fun. Uh, and I have not even in, in enjoyed watching my boss or anyone at the FTC have to do it. Um, th th this concern, however, the pivoting away from experts internally is really a pivoting away from staff and enforcement over the last few months. It is a, a misconceived idea that policies, rules, and regulations will accomplish the goals of antitrust. Having staff actually enforce the antitrust laws has taken a backseat this year. And this willingness to demean the work of the FTC is, is not going to end well. Well, let me stick or circle slightly back to, to merger enforcement, um, because that's another item from Commissioner Wilson's speech. You know, talking about the fact that the agency leadership it seems to be trying to sort of maximize discretion um, at higher levels. And um, I kind of actually have like a, like a very high level question about mergers and a very in the weeds question based on your conversation or you, what you just said. Um, first of all, I think it is worthwhile to lay the groundwork. You, you sort of hinted at it, but like 
if I'm an average person, uh, why should I care about merger enforcement? Like what, what is going on with merger enforcement? What's, what's the philosophy of enforcement? What are the benefits and the costs? Um, and then at the granular level, um, there have been reports that regulated parties seeking to merge are getting asked for information uh, on all sorts of stuff that is not actually related to competition. And is that happening? And if so, do you have any thoughts on why? Sorry to come at you from two very different directions, but. Sure, I think both of those questions are, can really just be summed up and answered in terms of what is going on in merger enforcement right now. Um, so I would say in general, there are the facts on the ground and there are some disputed claims and then there's what the FTC is doing in response. So for starters, as I mentioned, HSR filings have increased. So the amount of filings on mergers or acquisitions coming into the agencies, that number has gone up. We can all agree on that. And as I mentioned, we do not, however, know if there is proportional increase in competitively concerning transactions. When I say that, I mean maybe traditional, horizontal, and vertical theories of harm. So some people will say that we are over 40 years into this failed experiment of weak antitrust enforcement and deregulation that's caused widespread industry consolidation. And some economists have looked at these claims and heavily criticized them. Certainly, merger, merger retrospectives would be helpful in understanding past enforcement. And again, you run into a resource issue. Uh, the FTC needs more resources to look into merger retrospectives. That would be great. So with this picture of the HSR filings increase and some claims that are disputed, what is the FTC now doing? Yeah, I highlight three big actions that have been taken so far by the commission, uh, and one of which you mentioned. But first, I'll just start with back in February, the agencies announced a temporary and brief suspension of early termination. Now, about 10 months later, this action looks more permanent, and I should note early termination is when a merger acquisition, an HSR filing that comes in, um, seemingly no concern, no theory of harm, uh, the FTC or the DOJ clears it, says, go ahead, you can consummate this transaction uh, without waiting your statutory 30-day period. That's all it means, just you don't have to wait the 30 days. That's what it allows. Uh, so, you know, in the past, transactions would receive early termination, they'd have no apparent concerns, they didn't have to wait the 30-day period. Um, that is no longer happening. Take that in one bucket. Second, I'd really like to note the second big bucket is in July, the commission rescinded a 1995 policy statement on prior notice and prior approval. That limited uh, the circumstances in which these provisions would be imposed. So I'll just explain those quickly, uh, prior notice means that you have to basically file with the agency that you have a prior notice agreement with. It's, the, the rules can be different, but it's similar to what we just discussed in terms of the HSR filings. It's just that, as we noted, some mergers do not meet the HSR filing requirements. Um, so this would just make sure even a very small transaction is notified to the government. Whereas prior approval, you actually have to receive approval, not just the agency looks at your transaction and says, we don't see an issue here right now, or we're not gonna go through the process of trying to block this. The 
the agency reviewing would actually have to approve your transaction. It in effect, uh, flips the burden of proof. So what this new policy from the FTC did, it includes, the FTC says it's going to include prior approval provisions in all merger divestiture orders for every relevant market where harm is alleged. So basically, when the FTC reaches a consent with parties, prior approval is going to be included in the relevant markets. The commission also said that they could pursue prior approval provisions that are broader than the market in certain circumstances uh, when additional relief is needed. And the third uh, aspect of this policy was that at times the commission will pursue prior approval when a transaction is abandoned. So that last aspect was the exact reason the prior approval policy was put in place in 1995, because there was years of wasteful litigation against an abandoned merger. So now there are going to be prior approval provisions, although we have not seen this necessarily yet, that could be very, very broad if a party attempts to attempts a transaction, uh, or a party could abandon the transaction and end up in court just litigating a prior approval. And then finally, uh, this third basket I'd like to highlight here is that um, in August, the commission began extending letters to merging parties when their HSR statutory waiting period expires. So they noted these, these 30 or 60 days. Um, so these letters warn parties that if they choose to consummate a transaction, they're doing so at their own risk. So we mentioned the 30 day waiting period. It can be 60 days with a pull and refile. Basically that means parties can just allow an extra 30 days for a government review in order to avoid a second request. And for those that don't know, a second request is just an in-depth investigation that generally takes months to complete. Uh, ultimately, the FTC, instead of finishing an investigation in 30 or 60 days or issuing a second request, they're just sending threatening letters to parties. Now, these warning letters, uh, combined with the 7-Eleven marathon mess from earlier in the year, which I'm not gonna get into here, but it's worth looking into uh, if people would like to. This calls into question whether the FTC is going to follow timing provided by the HSR process or the terms agreed to in timing agreements. This seems to single-handedly change HSR review process from one with the 30-day waiting periods or 60 days with a quality file, followed by a second request and timing agreements as we noted, to a process where investigations will not follow statutory time or other agreements, instead uh, creating uncertainty through indefinite open-ended investigations. It's important to note that the antitrust agencies have the ability to challenge consummated mergers. So these letters are not creating new authority and the, uh, agencies don't need to pat themselves on the back saying, look, we're actually gonna go after consummated mergers now. Ultimately, it's unclear uh, to businesses, practitioners, and the public if transactions that receive these pre-consummation warning letters continue to be actively investigated, how long they should wait, or if there's any real meaning to the letters. And then finally, I'll just note exactly what you said, and I, I think I had mentioned this earlier, uh, there are reports that staff is being asked uh, to ask questions of parties that seem to not fit into any vertical or horizontal theory. This could be part of the whole delay that we are seeing in terms of uh, these warning letters, not being allowing investigate, staff to actually finish investigations or the reason staff cannot actually go through early terminations. Um, we do not know the answer to these questions. So ultimately, why should people care about any of this? I, I think that was your other high level question. And 
first, with a lack of transparency and uncertainty in the process, the FTC can kill deals by extending timeframes for review, inflating the cost of review, and injecting substantial deal uncertainty even after statutory waiting periods expire. Now, some people say this is good and we need to deter more transactions, but a likely scenario, even if you are one of the people in that camp, you have to accept that the procedural changes from the FTC will cause parties to shift away from the historical approach of cooperating with staff during merger review. Normally, parties will sign timing agreements submit rolling productions of documents and data, agree to amount of investigate, um, investigational hearings, and be transparent about their arguments through cooperative meetings and detailed white papers. But parties can change their tactics and make merger review less of an interactive process and more of a hard-nosed litigation process. If parties push the FTC onto the statutory clock and save their arguments for trial, they'll be much more difficult for the FTC to investigate transactions and block the actual anti-competitive ones. And the FTC will need exponentially more resources to go forward with enforcement if the cooperative approach to merger review collapses. Neo-Brandusians talk about a return to the early days of antitrust law. Early merger standards were a mess and unpredictable. Justice Stewart wrote that the sole consistency in litigating under Section 7 is that the government always wins. But that's not the world of antitrust anymore. And the FTC cannot snap its fingers and change case law to win cases if parties are actually willing to litigate. You know, we're still a country with an independent judiciary, and the FTC is going to have to face that eventually. Now, just look at how the horizontal merger guidelines are being treated today. These have been effective in helping the agencies enforce antitrust laws. And there are now strong signals that they will be rescinded and possibly replaced. We do not know what a replacement will look like, but if we go back to something like the rejected 1968 merger guidelines, which have been praised by some neo-Brandusians, there's a real risk that the merger guidelines will not be taken seriously by the parties to a transaction or courts. This would effectively take a tool for enforcement away from the agencies. This is all to say that many of these actions that are meant to increase enforcement are actually undermining the agencies and staff's ability to enforce the antitrust laws. So um, one of the things that's valuable about sort of the more um, case-by-case approach, you, you know, you talked about case-by-case approach to antitrust versus, you know, rules and regulations. It allows you to assess the costs and benefits of, say, a given merger uh, on its own terms without making big assumptions about sort of just the world in general. You can actually dig into the market. And, you know, you mentioned how this used to not function very well. I mean, the case comes to mind of, uh, you know, a, a merger among grocery stores in the Los Angeles area that ends up you know, constituting like six or 7% of the market. And so you're clearly not going to create market power where that chain can like abuse prices, but you may create efficiencies, you know, um, eliminate costs of double marginalization in the vertical pipeline, potentially create efficiencies, of, you know, economies of scale. There are these benefits. Um, and you capture all of that in a case by case analysis. But you talked earlier about the fact that there's an attempt to kind of move away from a case-by-case -case approach where possible and get more into uh, general, you know, rules of general application, passage of regulation. So that's where I wanted to head next because it's very clear to anybody watching from the outside 
that the FTC is setting itself up to start passing lots of rules. That's the sense. It, it seems like, you know, 2022 might be like the year of rules at the FTC. Uh, and we've seen this in the attempt to streamline the MAGMAS rulemaking process. And that's the route by which uh, the FTC can regulate unfair or deceptive acts or practices, you know, trade practices. We've seen them seek uh, comment on two petitions for potential rulemakings uh, in the unfair methods of competition area. So that's traditionally meant sort of antitrust enforcement. Um, there's a lot of moving pieces here uh, that we could dive into about whether the agency has authority under you know, the unfair methods route and all that stuff. I think for the moment, though, the, the, the thing I want to do to cut to the chase is ask, what rules, if you're a business, should you be expecting? What kind of rules are we likely to see? How many rules? What's the timing? Uh, you know, what is the landscape uh, for the regulated world, you know, coming up in the next year? Yeah, well, so 2022, the year of the rules. I, I think, uh, you know, Commissioner Wilson at the most recent um, Open Commission meeting stated that we are going to see a, she expects a rule of palooza. Uh, was her word uh, words at the uh Ooh, I, I, I like that even better so yeah no uh spread, spread that around the i'll start by saying i advise commissioner wilson on competition issues not consumer protection issues and the ftc has an established history of consumer protection rulemaking under its magmas authority which is the, the name of the statute uh, under which it approaches consumer protection rulemaking it there may or may not be action in the consumer protection rulemaking arena. I think we can almost guarantee that there'll be some action depending on how many, we'll see what types and how many rules are actually implemented. Uh, I'll leave that to a consumer protection expert. Um, I would note that Commissioner Wilson did, uh, and Commissioner Phillips, uh, put out dissent regarding the annual regulatory plan and seven semi-annual regulatory agenda that the FTC just put out. Um, and you should definitely take a look at that and take a look at the plan and agenda uh, to see a lot of the details about what the FTC has released um, publicly, as well as this is a uh, multi-agency, all of government uh, agenda as well. So you can see a lot about rules in the federal government by um, diving in into these documents that were just recently released, I believe on December 10th. Um, you know, I'd, I'd obviously note that a hot topic in this area is privacy. This would ideally involve federal privacy legislation, but could involve rulemaking at the FTC. Um, and that could fall into the consumer protection uh, arena as well. Um, do, you, do you have a prediction or a sense of which route privacy rulemakings are likely to go down the, the magma shoot or the unfair methods of competition shoot? The truth is, I, I don't know. So it's it's an easy um, easy for me to, to answer. I do not know the answer. I mean, privacy can obviously fit into both categories, but I would note that privacy in competition, uh, we think of as how many issues can fit into competition and that we are worried about innovation and competing for consumers um, that are interested in these areas. So if two companies are competing on privacy, that is relevant to competition. Whereas many of the other privacy related issues should or 
could or uh, likely a court will find fall into the consumer protection uh, bucket. Yeah, I think it's interesting um, to analyze how this has all played out in rulemaking and you can see how uh, something maybe should fall into one bucket or the other. The, the history of FTC rulemaking, uh, especially when you take it to competition arena is a bit murky. I'll try to do this uh, uh, quickly and, and definitely cut me off if you don't wanna hear all this, but there's a push for competition rulemaking. The chair has written a law review article about it. Um, at the time, Acting Chair Slaughter set up a rulemaking group where they stated, we want to pursue competition rulemaking, which the FTC traditionally has not pursued. The proponents of competition rulemaking claim that 6G of the FTC Act allows the commission to create substantive competition rules. But ultimately, it's not clear if the FTC can even do this. So to get to your question of if, there's, if there is privacy rulemaking coming forward, how will it be pursued, you need to look at whether competition rulemaking is even allowed. Um, you know, for the first few decades, the FTC regularly told Congress that it did not have substantive rulemaking power under 6G at all. And if we look at section six, that early interpretation of the statute makes sense. The other provisions of that section talk about investigations and studies and procedure. And then 6G, states that the commission shall also have power to make rules and regulation for carrying out the provisions. Yeah, I, I spoke at a at another FedSoc event and it took me about 10 minutes to explain the lack of authority under 6G. So you've done a very good, concise explanation. Well done. Yeah, I mean, and it goes on from there. There was a case in 1975 where uh, this rulemaking was held up. It's called National Petroleum Refiners. Um, and it found that the FTC did have the power to create substantive rules, but Congress acted um, by passing MAGMOS, which is how the FTC makes consumer protection rules now, uh, and that made a new section 18. So ultimately, if a court goes forward and has to interpret comp the power of the FTC to make competition rules, it can't do what the court national petroleum refiners did and just combine competition rulemaking and consumer protection rulemaking under 6G would have to do an independent analysis. Uh, th this distinction means that 6G might not contain substantive rulemaking powers at all. So when we talk about what path something will take to go back to your ultimate question, there is consumer protection rulemaking authority. You have to follow MAGMAS. The commission may attempt a strategy of dual labeling rules, and following Section 18 procedures, which by I mean, they, they say this is a competition and consumer protection rule and just throw anything at it. Or they might make explicit competition rules and may just label them consumer protection rules and pass them under Section 18. So if that happens, it'll be interesting to see what courts do with this type of regulatory gamesmanship. And then ultimately, I would just say on, on the privacy side, there's a lot to be seen. Now, states are acting and making this patchwork of law. There's uh, international authorities acting and international uh, legislators acting and multinational companies have to try to fit into that patchwork. Uh, Congress might act. Um, and then also, you know, FTC and others could, could come into the picture. So this is just a rapidly evolving area 
this privacy area, uh, it's very, very hard to, um, unless you are the chair of the FCC, FTC, to interpret what the FTC is going to do in this area. One, so you, we, we mentioned MAGMOS versus um, what you might call potentially 6G unfair competition, uh, methods of competition rulemaking. And one thing definitely worth noting is the MAGMOS route has more procedural safeguards and hurdles for the agency to go through. So it's harder, it'll take longer than if they have authority under 6G, they could just do what's known as notice and comment rulemaking under the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, so that's one uh, caveat worth noting. If they go down the 6G route, uh, we know that the agency is interested in uh, non-compete agreements, you know, where a company says, if you work for us, you, you know, you can't work for one of our competitors for a certain amount of time after you leave. Um, what else might we see down the 6G route? I mean, is it just you, you don't know we'll see or do you have a sense of, of which rulemakings, you know, we, we might expect there? I can have the same sense and uh, guesses as people outside the agency in this arena. And, you know, as I noted again, the, the FTC chair has a lot of the power sits with her to make these decisions. But you know, you noted non-competes. There was a workshop in the past that specifically looked at non-competes, rulemaking analysis was a big part of that workshop at the FTC. This was under Chair Simons. There was another labor workshop more recently uh, at the FTC that at least looked at this uh, to an extent, the, the chair may decide to pursue that path. There is also a very public rulemaking petition um, on non-competes, and there was also one on other exclusionary contract provisions. That could be something the FTC pursues. Uh, you know, the other idea that has been talked about a lot, is, as we already discussed, is merger enforcement. Could you make a rule in the competition arena about merger enforcement? Again, <laughs> sorry to be unhelpful, but I do not know the answer about what is actually going to be pursued and the extent to which uh, the FTC, the chair, will decide that a rule is or is not a good idea. Knowing that an attorney advisor to one of the FTC commissioners uh, has, has kind of no greater insight than the general public is itself interesting information as far as I'm concerned. Um, the, the, so. Adam, you know, last last question. Um, you've mentioned the term neo Brandeisian multiple times. For for those who might be wondering, I mean, Louis Brandeis, uh, famous uh, attorney, uh, close advisor to Woodrow Wilson, later a justice on the Supreme Court, um, kind of known as the uh, the father of the concept of sort of big is bad from a prior generation of trust busting, you know, back in the days of Standard Oil and all. So the idea is to, um, you know, I'm speaking very much in generalities, but to sort of break down consolidations of corporate power with uh, socio-political goals in mind, uh, worker welfare, um, democracy, which um, I guess I'll kind of reveal my priors a bit in saying that 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 means sort of pulverizing the private sphere and making sure that companies are are sort of brought to heel in the face of government power. Although in Brandeis's defense, I'll note he also was wary of government power and and um, the power of bureaucrats. And I, I think that aspect of his thinking gets a little bit lost in the modern movement. Um, but before I drift off further into into the weeds there. 
that is all just by way of prologue to asking you a very hard question of just where is this going? So the Neo Brandeisian project is currently, uh, you know, the Neo Brandeisians are in the driving seat and their project is going to get a, a tryout in the coming year, certainly. Um, when they get into court, as you mentioned earlier, they are going to run into judges who are applying their own interpretations of the antitrust law. Uh, let's not dive into, you know, the interrelationship between the Sherman Act and the FTC Act, but just note that they are closely connected and judges will look at the one and applying the other. Um, is this all going to end in tears? I mean, once it gets into court, what 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 is likely to happen? So, so first of all, every time we discuss Brandeis in terms of antitrust, you have to remember that he had a serious distrust of big government. That is completely lost in today's discussions. And you perfectly know that. So to actually answer your question, you know, what what is the goal of the Neo-Brandesians and what's going to happen here? Uh, from reading their work, we know that there's these broad goals um, of targeting root causes of problems and uh, addressing rampant consolidation, addressing dominant intermediaries and uh, what they call extractive business models. It's not clear necessarily what any of those concerns are in the precise details or, or what actions will actually be taken um, for many of these concerns and goals. Where there is a clear concern like address rampant consolidation. We don't know the specifics of the plan. We can anticipate maybe rulemaking as I noted in merger enforcement or we, we've seen policy changes already like the prior approval statement and the rescission of the section five statement. But we've not seen these policies play out significantly in practice with the caveat of some prior approvals appearing in recent consent orders. Um, other ideas like eliminating the consumer welfare standard might be favorable to neo Brandesians, but I'm not sure how they would go about achieving a goal like that, considering they will eventually have to bring some of these cases in front of a judge. Yeah. Let's look at one specific example, the FTC Section 5 authority, which you mentioned, um, and I don't think we've talked about in too much detail here. Uh, the commission majority, when it was three to two, rescinded the old Section 5 policy statement. That now rescinded Section 5 policy statement was a bipartisan Obama-era statement that had three fundamental principles. First, it said the commission will be guided by the policy of promoting consumer welfare. Second, the conduct would be evaluated uh, considering both harms and pro-competitive justifications. And third, uh, and this is what you mentioned, the standalone Section 5 case would be less likely when competitive harms could be addressed by the Sherman or Clayton Acts. And there is a, there's an overlap there in a lot of uh, past enforcement. So I don't know how Section 5 uh, enforcement is going to be employed outside of these basic limiting principles that apparently needed to be removed. Um, but based on the words of FTC leadership, we can expect broad use outside the scope of antitrust laws as they've interpreted by courts or outside the scope of the Sherman or Clayton Acts. The neo Brandesians appear to believe that based on their interpretation of Congress's intent in passing Section 5, the FTC can challenge almost any conduct that three commissioners find objectionable. But what seems to be lost in this logic is that this has been tried before. When the FTC pushed the limits with standalone Section 5 cases in the 1980s, Courts of Appeals rejected those attempts. Commission leadership cannot just expand the authority of Section 5 now that they are in power. Another example, 
you know, can be found in the rescission of the vertical merger guidelines. Two leading experts, now I won't take my own view or anything Commissioner Wilson has said, uh, Herbert Hovenkamp and Carl Shapiro, they wrote publicly that the majority's description of EDM was flatly incorrect. And the majority appears not to have consulted their own economists. They, they also described the majority's discussion of efficiencies and statutory text as baffling. That's the word they used. Commission leadership, this is all to say, must still follow economics and basic principles of vertical merger enforcement in this case, or its enforcement actions are going to be rejected by the courts. I will note, if the FTC can do basically whatever it wants in enforcing unfair methods of competition, if to put it another way, they can use the word unfair to mean sort of anything within the scope of what a reasonable person thinks unfair would mean, um, they're not only going to have problems with the court's saying, look, you need to stick closer than that to the Sherman Act, which is what those cases you mentioned in the 1980s uh, said. They run into a non-delegation problem, which um, basically Article One of our Constitution right at the outset says that the, the Congress has to wield legislative power, which means make the policy decisions. And they can't just hand that off to, um, to others, in this case, the FTC. I bring that up to preview. Uh, we should have an episode in the new year that is much more devoted to that topic. So stay tuned. Adam, this has been so much fun. Thank you for coming on. Thank you again for having me. It's been great. It was a pleasure. Uh, articulate as always. Uh, we'll have to have you again sometime. Listeners, thank you so much for uh, checking out the show this year. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. We will see you in 2022. Take care. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.